Hello, my name is Jordan Marr. I'm a farmer in BC's North Okanagan, and this is Farming in British Columbia, a podcast that you and your friends can call FBC if you like. Take that fishing in British Columbia podcast. This episode features my conversation with Zach Beshra. My name is Zach Beshra. I'm a reporter based in Vancouver, and I did a series on migrant farm workers in British Columbia for the Taiyi. The first article in Zach's series is titled, A Case of Bad Apples or a Rotten Orchard? And he went on to publish around seven more articles about problems that some migrant farm workers face when working in BC, ranging from inadequate housing conditions to abuse by employers to social isolation. If you're a farmer in BC or farming adjacent, you probably already know about these issues. You know the subject of migrant farm workers is really sensitive, and there's a good chance you believe that the average non-farmer in BC doesn't have the full picture of how this program works and how vital it is to the sector. In his series, Zach tries to paint that full picture, and there was a lot in there that surprised me, especially on the topic of enforcement of the rules and how institutions like the Mexican consulate have had to play an oversight role that was never intended. Anyway, I hope you'll go back and check out Zach's series at the Tai. But meanwhile, here's my conversation with him about his reporting. Zach Veshra, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Jordan, thank you for having me. Zach, I read the series you produced for the Taiyi with great interest, and I'm so delighted you're going to talk to me about it today. I thought I would start just by asking you about your background as a journalist. Briefly, take me up to the point that you had the opportunity to do this reporting. Oh, man. Well, that's a long story and a short story. Um, The short story is that uh, I was the labor reporter at the Taiyi, and so my beat was mostly about things happening in in the greater world of labor in British Columbia, union disputes, but also working conditions in various industries. That led me to report on a story about a group of Mexican construction workers who claimed that they had been essentially bilked or tricked by an immigration consultant um, who then took a bunch of their money and left. And that resulted in in a proposed class action lawsuit against that consultant. When I was you know, covering that story, at one point I spoke with the Mexican Consul General uh, in Vancouver, uh, Berenice Quebalos. And while I was speaking with her, she said, look, if you want a real labor story, you should really be reporting on the conditions faced by migrant farm workers in this province, a great number of whom are Mexican nationals. It was always something that I, I kind of knew was happening. You know, I had heard about migrant farm workers in the Okanagan, in the interior, in the Fraser Valley. I hadn't really dug into the topic in a serious way. But after that conversation, I started to make that some calls. Uh, a few calls became a few dozen calls. And the next thing you know, I was uh, in a van heading out to the Okanagan for a week to do some reporting. Right. So I we can assume there'll be uh, the audience will be largely comprised of farmers uh, listening right. to this. But let's let's set some context anyway. Um, just like and just roughly ballpark like what how how dependent is bc's farming sector on migrant workers and and give us a sense of numbers it is i think fair to say immensely dependent on migrant farm workers particularly in some subsectors of agriculture that deal with fruit harvesting hard numbers are hard to come by for a few reasons that i can lay out but just last year farmers got permission to hire 12,000 migrant farm workers in British Columbia between both nursery and general farm positions. I'll note that probably isn't the actual number uh, that are in the province at a given time. Some farm workers are on contracts that are longer than a year, and so they would have already been here or you know, they wouldn't be counted in that total. 
some farm workers may only be in the province for a few months at a time for a very short period. But we are talking about in excess of 10,000 farm workers here. Uh, and in many large farms, particularly large fruit farms in the Okanagan, they are literally almost all the workforce. Okay, so can you, I guess, can you, can you take us through your reporting a bit? I really want to stress that right off the bat that we're not going to go deep into your reporting because I would encourage <laughs> listeners to go and check out this excellent series at thetai.ca. Um, it's pretty easily searched for there. Um, but still, for more context, I'd love to know, like, what were the major findings or conclusions of your reporting? The findings and conclusions of the reporting, if I, if I had to put it in a nutshell, was that there were some very serious problems in the Migrant Farm Worker Program in BC related to the treatments of farm workers. And that these problems and issues when they came up were, were very, you know, very rarely resulted in actual penalties for employers. So just to, to kind of give an example, I, I visited some farms and spoke to some farmers who lived in housing that probably no British Columbian would find acceptable. Um, you know, we're talking about leaks in the roofs and, you know, shoddy insulation and, and sometimes living in buildings that didn't have any insulation whatsoever. Uh, I even met one worker who had photos of a, of a chicken coop he had lived in, essentially, just a converted chicken coop. And we found that inspections of housing were very rare, um, often incomplete, and rarely resulted in any kind of penalty for the employer. We also found some dis, you know, disturbing reports about other forms of, I guess you could say, abuse in this program. We spoke with workers who had evidence that uh, their employers had you know, taken off the top of their paychecks or that they had been paid cash um, you know, off payroll for part of the time, their time working for a farm. We also spoke with workers who told us that their employers had forced them to hand over their passports and other documentation to the employer. Um, as a condition of working, which again is against the rules. And in some very disturbing cases, we even found workers who told us that they had been physically assaulted uh, by their employers on the job. And, and we found that when workers found themselves in these difficult situations, they often had fairly few options or felt that they had fairly few options and felt that even you know sounding the alarm or complaining about it would risk their legal status to remain and keep working in Canada and thereby endanger their families back home who depend on this income. Uh, I'll stress as well that I think another finding of the reporting was that there was a disconnect between the farming community and advocates for these workers. Uh, many farmers, I think, um, the majority of farmers, I think, in the program are, are, are following all the rules and following all the guidelines and treating their workers fairly well. And the assumption I heard from government officials and from sort of farm industry stakeholders was that these cases, when they came up, were a few bad apples. But when you kind of look at the big picture, I think it helps to remember the second half of that phrase, which is a few bad apples spoils the punch. And we just sort of found a systemic lack of, effect, of effective oversight that allowed people who break these rules to get away with it pretty frequently. Um, that, I think, is the core crux and finding of, of our reporting. A pretty good summary. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just going to ask one or two follow-up questions about, about the housing. Mm -hmm. um, one is just, uh, you, you referenced just like a standard of housing that few British Columbians would consider acceptable for themselves. You didn't mention density. Um, was that an issue yeah. as well? I, I just remember that from your reporting. It's, density of people in these, in these houses. A huge issue, right? Like, 
the requirements around these house, the, the, this housing, just just kind of break, maybe this is a good time to break it down. Uh, in theory, prior to having any farm workers come over to the uh, to British Columbia, farmers have to have the housing for that, those workers inspected. Um, this program is pretty unique in that most of this parts of the, of the temporary foreign worker program, there's not an expectation for employers to house their workers, right? That, that That's kind of unique to farm work. Um, but they have to get inspected, and that inspection, you know, includes some pretty basic things about like, you know, square footage per person and, you know, the uh, overall like standard of the standard of the of the housing to make sure that it's safe and relatively comfortable. Um, but what we found is that those rules weren't always being followed. You know, I visited one one building. I, I wouldn't say house. It was almost more like a shed in the Fraser Valley. And, and there were probably four workers living in there. And uh, it, it was smaller than a garage. Right. Like it was a very small, tight building. It was fairly nice. It had been refurbished on the inside, but it was a lot of people to be crammed into a very small structure. Another farm that I visited in the Okanagan, the walls were made of, I can only describe it as just sort of sheet metal that had a little bit of insulation attached to the back, to the back of it. The house had no formal foundation. Uh, there were multiple leaks throughout the building, evidence of vermin. Um, you know, the only kind of living room area was this massive kitchen with like hard concrete floors and there were like three or four fridges because that's how many fridges they needed to, you know, feed the number of workers there. I think at its peak, there were 20 people in that house and it's, it's not a whole lot bigger than the fairly modest apartment that I have here in Vancouver. So that's the physical description. Can you describe your visceral reaction when you saw it? Um, I mean, it wasn't good. Uh, it was, yeah, it's, it's, it was difficult to kind of be in that space. And, you know, I, you know, when I was there, I, I arrived kind of, um, I, I, I went to the Okanagan in early June and that was before the peak season for this particular farm that had this housing. So at the time there were only, I would say about six or seven workers there. Right. And, and you went in and you got and you already had the feeling that, oh, yeah, like this is, you know, so my first feeling was like, oh, yeah, this is OK. This is like a, a fairly decent amount of space for all these people, you know, like they've each got bedrooms themselves. And then, you know, it's not that bad. And then you hear that, oh, there's actually going to be like three times more people here in a few weeks. And then you just sort of go, oh, and you look around and you, you know, you kind of think to yourself, this wouldn't be legal in any other setting. But, but it's oh, legal when we're talking about migrant farm workers. Okay, but and okay. It, yeah. It, how it was, is it? it so hard. I wanted to ask yeah. you that. So like, because I'm trying to get, I want to get a sense of how, yeah. because in your reporting, you mentioned there is theoretically a system of like inspection that happens before a farm can start accepting these workers, right? Like yeah. the actual uh, inspection of the premises. I don't even know if I'll ask you to comment on the conditions, but just the density intended. I would assume that, that like the inspector is going to come and determine the number of people that can be in that dwelling and then that the farmers like only going to be allowed to apply for like this is a formal program how do they end up with so many more people living in a dwelling than than they should be allowed or that that is acceptable it's a no it's a great question the the answer is that the oversight model for the housing inspections is i, I think pretty deeply flawed um and you know that's how it was described to me by advocates the, the way it works is prior to ever having the workers come you have to get your home inspected by a licensed housing inspector right which is essentially a handful of individuals across the province who have been sort of cleared to do this by wally -E, uh which is sort of a subset of the bc agriculture council 
And, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 and the standards for that housing are actually relatively high, right? Like, again, like if you were to follow the guidelines to letter, you would have pretty acceptable workable housing. But the problem is because of the way the program is set up, it's fairly easy, for example, for an employer to show inspectors maybe a bunch of housing that they have on their, on their property or buildings they have on their property, say, yeah, we're going to put farm workers here. And then when the workers actually show up, you can put them in a different building. Or, for example, there might be inspectors who, you know, have a close relationship with farmers and, you know, sign the paper and don't necessarily do the inspection closely. You know, I heard anecdotally there are problems with that. Um, there's there's lots of ways in which this can in which this can go wrong. Right. In which, like, you know, the employers can get around kind of the, the housing rules as they exist. Um, in the case of the farm in the Okanagan I went to, for example, you know, what I learned from workers there was that there were other housing buildings, there were other housing units and buildings on the property, but they weren't being used to house workers. You know, one of them was occupied by members of the owner's family, and another one was actually being rented out, I think, to some students in the area. So their theory was that, yeah, this place was inspected, but the inspector probably looked at all three houses and then was able to say, okay, yeah, 20 workers can fit here, and now here we are. Um, and I'll note that, like, that house that I went to you know, I've described it to you and, and said that it's not necessarily a place that I would want to live in. Um, but what I heard from, you know, farmers, farmers and farm workers out there was that that actually wasn't that bad. Uh, the really bad housing is when you have situations where there's not insula there's no insulation or there's no air conditioning whatsoever. Um, and you're in really, really cramped quarters. And, and that's where you start to run into the really serious problems. But uh, that that's kind of a, a brief overlay of how people are able to hop across these rules sometimes. Also worth noting that once the workers arrive, there are inspectors in theory who come around from the federal government, but we heard that those inspections were very rare. Many workers who have been in Canada for years and years and years said that they had never seen an inspector. And we also heard that in almost all cases, those inspectors don't speak Spanish, which is the primary language of communication for these workers. So, you know, they roll up to the house, they're looking around, they might be asking the workers questions, and it's possible that most or none of the workers can actually respond to those questions. So that's that's not going to be very effective. Okay, so a, a few more questions and then we'll move on. Um, why, how did you gain access to these, this, the, the, the examples that you saw that weren't great, how did you gain access to them? Like, how did that, I just, like, it must not have been easy. It wasn't. Uh, one kind of consequence of this program expanding so rapidly in recent years is that there's also kind of a growing, burgeoning community of advocates and aid organizations that are assisting these workers in one way or another. You know, I, I met many people who worked in churches, for example, in the Okanagan, who were helping raise money to buy these workers bikes and, you know, and uh, food and you know, gloves, whatever equipment they might need to while they're spending their summer in the Okanagan. Um, and there are also, you know, some more, I, I think you could say even like politically oriented aid organizations that are a little bit more outspoken in their support for workers and their calls for change. And when I began this reporting, I started by making connections with a bunch of those aid organizations and, you know, talking and, and meeting people there. Um, and gradually over time, that translated into, you know, being able to accompany them on visits to farms and gradually meeting farm workers through them. It, it wasn't an easy process because there was honestly a, a big issue of trust at the start. 
I think, you know, they were understandably very hesitant about, you know, letting a reporter talk to these workers or letting a reporter on farms. Many of them feared that workers would face consequences just for speaking with me or if I was seen, you know, walking around the farm with my camera. Um, so some of those visits were kind of done with the expectation that I wouldn't be, you know, doing on-record interviews with workers. And gradually over time, as I began to visit more and more frequently, those, those turned into on-record conversations and we managed to get the story from there. But it was it was a long kind of slow building process um, to, to gain access to these farms. So, OK, so as one question I have that comes up in listening to you is as a reporter, how do you how do you ultimately avoid committing confirmation bias or at least avoid being accused of committing confirmation bias? Meaning you were working with these advocates who were able to show you some bad examples that really do yeah. exist. I imagine you as a reporter have, a, that's a, that's supposed to be a launching off point. So how do you take those, those on the ground examples that are crucial to your reporting and then be able to make broader observations or reports about, about the state of the program, these programs? That's a great question. And it's a very important question because one feature of this program as well, is that there's a very serious division between, you know, farm employers and owners and these advocates, they disagree on a lot of things. They disagree on the nature of the program itself. They disagree on how well workers are treated. And so I was very conscious about coming into this and you know having an appearance of bias. One way I tried to avoid that was by you know also reaching out to farm owners as well. You know I spoke to a few farm owners off record as part of my conversations for this for this series. I also met with um, you know folks with the BC Fruit Growers Association and you know did some interviews with farm owners who are very candid about how much they rely on this program, right? Like, you know, many people told me, they said, look, if it weren't for these guys, if it weren't for the workers that are coming from Mexico or Guatemala or Jamaica, we're not farming. We're not operational in the Okanagan. And so we have a vested interest in training these workers well. And many farms I did visit, I'll be clear, you know, there were farms I visited where the workers clearly had a really good relationship with the employer and things were good. Um, there was one farm I went to in the Fraser Valley where workers were living in, I would describe it as like a pretty nice kind of older farmhouse. And they, you know, they were very happy to be there. Some of them had been coming back to that same farm for like a decade. I even met one worker who said that his employer was helping him apply for permanent residency, which is, you know, awesome, amazing. Um, so it, it was very clear to me kind of from, you know, as I started to have those conversations and as I looked at the other side that, there are a lot of farmers who are doing the right thing in this program. In fact, I think fair to say the majority are following, you know, all the rules. But there's also this other side of it. There's this kind of dichotomy there. And that became something that I had to just kind of figure out how to balance and express in my reporting. Um, because I agree, I think it would be irresponsible to, you know, paint every farmer in the pro who's using this program with the same brush. I don't think that's necessarily fair. But it was also sort of unavoidable that, yeah, there are these bad actors who are just flagrantly breaking the rules. So a little sidebar then. Um, I don't I don't want to uh, justify at all the um, examples like this of just providing terrible, inadequate, unacceptable housing to workers. Mm -hmm. However, little sidebar, what role does this came out very briefly in your reporting. What role does restrictions on housing on ALR land play into this? So you've already established, and I agree with you as a farmer who doesn't, who has never taken advantage of using temporary foreign workers, but 
I mm. have, I've been in the industry a long time. It really is vital in certain subsectors. Uh, we'd be in big trouble to try and go back to the way it was before. Yeah. Um, but, uh, what what role what what role if at all does the ALR housing building restrictions how does that ex I'm going to use the word exacerbate some of these worst problems? I think exacerbate is a is a totally fair word to use. Um, you know, so you, the listeners here are mostly farmers, so they they know all about the agricultural land reserve and how it works, right? And and they'll they'll probably know that if you are trying to build housing on farmland, it is a fair bit harder to do that than it is to build housing in other areas, right? Because our government, for very understandable reasons, doesn't want people developing housing on prime farmland. Um, and so, you know, when I was doing this reporting, I did encounter farmers and, you know, had conversations with people who were saying, yeah, you know, it's incredibly difficult for us to actually build any kind of permanent structure on our farms. You know, you have to go to city council to get a special approval, and then that request has to go on to the agricultural land review itself, and they have to sign on on it. And so a lot of farmers just said, look, we either don't bother with it or we know that it takes years. It's a really, you know, irksome process for us. Um, and the ALR will tell you that, yeah, you know, we know it's a bit, there's a bit of an extra process required, but there is a good reason for that, um, which is that they don't want, you know, a lot of housing built on farmland, right? Um, you can imagine a situation, for example, where maybe a farmer you know, wants to hire a lot of temporary foreign workers, they build housing for 20 people, and then maybe three or four years later, they stop using the program, and maybe they decide they can turn a profit by renting out that housing to people in the general community, right? And that's that's not the purpose of of what that housing should be for, or what farmland or, or what farm land should be for. But also, as you uh, you, yeah. pointed, you pointed out earlier, there's already if you talk about some of the most unethical uh, bad actors. It sounds like some of these farms do have other adequate housing, but they're seeing a profit motive to not to not actually use it for their definitely, for their definitely. And I, and I think that's that's exactly why the review has trepidations about letting people build even more housing, right? I think they recognize that there's that second incentive there. The result of of all that coming together, though, is that the preferred form of housing for these workers is inherently temporary housing, often sort of these mobile trailers that you see on some of these farms. They're kind of like these very long, almost rectangular structures, usually with like metal on the outside. And those trailers, like I've been inside some of those trailers. Some of those trailers are fairly nice. Like they're, they're nicely furbished on the inside. They're like a totally acceptable place for someone to live for a few months. Um, they don't have like a solid foundation or anything like that, right? But they're, they're, they're a decent place to live. I've been inside other trailers where it's, it's been a lot more beat up, frankly, and a little bit more cramped. But you see a lot of those that that you know the, that temporary housing in the Okanagan, um, you know, kind of as a result of these policies. So so there is sort of a way around the agricultural land reserve. I I, I don't want to say that that is the deciding problem in providing good housing for these workers, um, but it definitely doesn't help. I don't think. What what I'm what I'm kind of getting at there. I was going to ask you this later, but I think we'll just go there now. Mm. I I just think like the word that constantly kept coming up as I read your reporting was desperation in, in, in different ways, right? Like, yeah. you know, cause you know, a really oversimplified argument from those who are defensive, you know, about, about what the, far, some of the farmers are doing is that, you know, it, it's a classic one. It's like, why would the workers keep returning if, if it was yeah. so bad? And yet you can answer that pretty quickly. Well, if they, if they have desperate conditions in their lives, that's going to be an incentive to keep returning if they're desperately dependent on this income, then they're going to put up with more than they would otherwise. But then meanwhile, on the other side, 
as we've already covered, farmers in this province are desperate. You you briefly mm. mentioned in your reporting that like even to consider eliminating the program, which just won't happen, like you have to think about competition. I mean, let's just focus on tree fruit alone, right? Like we have massive competition from 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 U.S. states on the West Coast that are mm. all using cheap migrant labor. So th- there's desperation on, on, I guess, on both sides that, that really, I would think, I don't know how to put this, like there's going to be a certain percentage of bad actors who are going to be unethical, but maybe it's a higher percentage because of the desperation in the farming industry to try and remain economically viable. I think that's a fair observation, and I would agree with your assessment that you know both parties are desperate here, and that creates a situation where I, I I agree I don't see the program ending anytime soon. One thing that's useful to know about this program, uh, and I'll throw this in because I think this is very important. When it began, there were just a few dozen people in it in 2004, the first year that BC allowed migrant farm workers to come, and now, as I've told you, it's it's handily more than 10,000 who are in the province at a given time, right? And the single biggest source country for those workers is Mexico. And most of those workers, you know, are under a program called the SAWP, uh, the Seasonal Agricultural Partnership. And the way that those workers are selected to be in this program is actually by Mexico's Ministry of Labor, which like specifically looks for workers uh, in areas of the country with high levels of unemployment and high levels of poverty who want to go to Canada to earn this income because it's a lot more money than they would be able to make working in their own communities. So by definition, a lot of the workers in this program are coming from impoverished areas with high unemployment rates and the money they are making is supporting a lot of their family back home, right? So they're not going to walk away and, and you know just because like the housing looks bad, they really desperately need this money. And then you're right, by the same token, you know, the reason why farmers lobbied so hard for this program, especially fruit farmers in the early 2000s, is because they were literally at a point where they were worried about their product rotting on the vine and not, or rotting on the tree rather, and not getting to market because they they couldn't keep, you know, they could not meet that labor market demand. So I, I agree. I think there is a certain degree of desperation and mutual reliance here on both sides. But the way the program is set up is that it does kind of give the employer more cards, right? The employer ultimately is the one who kind of directs the show who has the ability to fire workers or not hire workers, or not retain them, they, they do have the upper hand in the relationship. And I agree. I think that does lead to play. That did lead to instances in my reporting where we identified sort of malfeasance or, or bad practice. Okay. So I want to start, I want to spend some time talking about what, what needs to change. And, but first I just want to note that one thing that was interesting to me. So, well, I'll just say straight up that one, reads your report and really gets a strong sense that um, the, any government officials you contacted, whether provincially or federally, did not participate in your reporting in good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. However, you talked to, among others, Glenn Lucas, who was the then head of the uh, the executive director of the BC Fruit Growers Association, now recently retired as of v- mm. very recently. Um, you talked to Reg Enns from that organization you mentioned before, the subsidiary of the BC Ag Council, the Western Agriculture Labor Initiative, right. and, and other farmers, all of who acknowledged and agreed that there are some serious problems with the program and there is problems specifically with oversight and accountability, which falls to the, which is the government. The government is in charge of that. So 
can you you've already done it a little bit but to start can you can you talk about how accountability and oversight is supposed to work i'm going to ask you to try and be brief i know like reading your reporting it's very complex and that's part of the problem oh man yeah i'll, I'll do my best on, on being brief here it is a classic case of too many cooks in the kitchen if you look at who's responsible for what in this program, there's there are like six or seven different government ministries from the federal and the provincial level who are responsible for different parts of how this works. The Ministry of Health in BC is theoretically responsible for housing quality. The Minister of Agriculture in, in British Columbia is also involved. The Ministry of Labor's Employment Standards Branch is in charge of working conditions on farms. But you've also got federal immigration involved. You've got Employment and Social Development Canada involved. You've got all these people involved. And, and unfortunately, that creates a situation where it, it kind of becomes a game of hot potato or jurisdictional football. And what we found in our reporting is that, you know, there is a lot of regulation on this program on every level of it. But there's very little oversight. You're rarely having people go around and check that the housing is as described. You're rarely having people go visit the workers and you know inspecting working conditions and making sure things are okay. And if you do, it's usually complaint-based. Um, and often when these inspectors are, are going to these farms, as I mentioned before, a lot of the times, in fact, the vast majority of the times, they don't speak Spanish and they're not coming to someone who speaks Spanish, which puts them in a situation where they often can't really communicate with the workers about what's going on. And I actually remember when I interviewed Glenn Lucas and I told him that, that, you know, hey, I'm, I've heard from workers that these inspectors don't speak Spanish. Even he was kind of alarmed by that. And I remember him just sort of saying, well, that, that doesn't make any sense because most of these workers have very little to no ability in, in English. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was very clear that everyone agreed that government oversight of this program is lacking and could stand to be approved, to be improved. Um, everyone kind of agreed that like, we don't necessarily need more regulation in this program, but there needs to be a bit more of a stronger hand to make sure the existing rules are being followed. So, okay. So the, the one major competing narrative in this discussion or debate is, is this a few bad apples or a rotten system, a, a broken system, mm -hmm. isn't it? And I know, I know Glenn Lucas, for example, was a proponent of the bad apples argument. And I know that many people that want to, there are many people who want to defend the program and say that, but how do they then defend the government's lack of interest in, in taking care of those few bad apples? If it's bad apples, shouldn't it be a lot easier to just take care of them? Similarly, why isn't it in the farmers collectively best interest to make sure the bad apples are, are like taken out of the bin <laughs> you know like yeah, yeah no right and, and like that's that's the thing you know glenn lucas actually used the expression bad apples which i thought i was like oh that's great because this is you know that's a great like sort of pun for a story about farming but you know there's a second half of that expression which is a few bad apples spoil the bunch right and farmers were cognizant of that you know farmers i spoke to said look we're aware that these bad actors are out there and that they you know destroy the reputation of the industry of the program, and they basically put this thing in jeopardy for all of us, right? Um, you know, I, I think, for example, there was a farm in Mission, BC um, that was run by the, the Aquilini family, the owner of the Vancouver Canucks. And, and there was a huge scandal just a few years ago where a, a group of Guatemalan workers spoke out about basically working in like borderline slave conditions, like not being paid for their labor. And that was a, a huge scandal at the time and kind of a small reckoning for the program. And there's been like little ones like that, like almost every year there'll be a report of a farm that's done something, you know, that's been caught doing something terribly wrong. And, you know, 
I, I think I understand where Glenn Lucas and other farmers come from just being like, okay, well, you know, this is a sign that the system is working and that, you know, bad apples are being picked out and put out of the bin. But when I was out there talking to people, it was just so clear that there were a lot of people who were breaking the rules who weren't necessarily being caught doing it or penalized for doing it, right? That was that was kind of a constant, you know, sort of theme of it. And so I, I think that there, I think that you're right. There, there is kind of a risk here, you know, if oversight does not improve, that you will eventually have, you know, more scandals kind of gradually emerge, and that might, you know, put the program itself in in jeopardy, basically. How um, many? You think, must, yeah. you must have asked someone at some point in your reporting, like, can, for examples of farms that have been kicked out of the program. Did you get any statistics on that? I did not get statistics on how many farms have been kicked out of the program. And I, I did ask the government multiple times. Uh, the government does operate a registry that shows, you know, different employers in the temporary foreign worker program who have been fined because they've been found to break the rules. Um, and there are quite a few farms on that list, but the government offers, frankly, very few details on why those fines were issued and what exactly happened. I, I, I'm actually still, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm still doing further reporting to try and unearth more details about the exact frequency of farmers who have been kicked out. Um, what I, one statistic I can give you is that the Mexican government has blacklisted more than 50 farms from BC from hiring its nationals under the SAWP program. And one, one kind of, find, you know, this was actually a very surprising finding for me. As a result of some of the oversight problems that we've talked about, the Mexican consulate has, has kind of taken it upon itself to do visits of farms. Um, and, you know, its officials have literally visited hundreds of farms across the province, you know, since they began doing this. And they've kind of done their own inspections. And I, was, often, I was fascinated yeah. by this. I was fascinated yeah. by this part of your yeah. reporting. And I, I want to, let's, let's do a sidebar here, I, I, just because it's For interesting. Sure. So earlier you describe how basically there's been a bit of a dereliction of responsibility on the part of our own government officials. Meanwhile, you have the, the Mexican consulate in Vancouver is a place where Mexican nationals can go when they have problems of all, all kinds related to being in Canada as Mexicans. Tell take take me from take us from there. So like how do so then so now you have the consul making. I want to know a, a little bit about these visits and and mm. to what extent they're official or unofficial. It's it's fascinating. Right. So under the SAWP program, you know the Mexican consul, the Mexican government is a party to this program. This is a, the SAWP is essentially a partnership signed between the governments of Mexico and Canada to allow this flow of workers. And and that program, by the way dates back to the 1960s. The very first time it was done, it was between Canada and Jamaica, I believe. Um, and Mexico signed on a little bit later. And so as part of that program, you know, the Mexican consulate obviously, you know, has total, has the absolute right to visit farms where its nationals are working and, and you know, do these inspections. And, but they began doing them because they were getting so many complaints from workers. And they were starting to hear so routinely from workers who were in a bad position. But they began thinking, okay, we just need to do this as more of a routine thing. Um, I would describe them as being official visits. They are you. They usually do not give the farmer a heads up that they are coming. They they do not legally have to, is my understanding. Um, and part of the problem with some of the government visits are that farmers sometimes do get a heads up, which the Mexican government is of the mindset, well, that doesn't make any sense if we're trying to like do an official inspection here. And yeah, like by their own, what they do basically is they will show up to these farms. They have like a team that drives around in the summertime, going to farms where the nationals are. They'll go inside, they'll take photos, they'll interview workers, they'll find any problems. And if they do find problems, they write that up in a report and send it off to provincial and federal government officials. 
So another way of putting it is the Mexican government is basically picking up the slack left by our own governments because they felt that they didn't have a choice. And even in events, in cases where, um, you know, farms haven't, you know, not necessarily been fined or by any Canadian officials, the Mexican government has also taken the step of blacklisting them kind of unofficially on their end, basically saying we're not sending any more Mexican nationals to this farm under this program because we've had persistent issues with this employer. Um, but because that's the Mexican government doing that, there's nothing preventing those same employers from turning around the next year and saying, OK, we're going to hire Guatemalans or we're going to hire Jamaicans or Hondurans. Um, right. Because they, they still have access to the program. It's just that this one government has decided to shut them out. Which is, so, which is, which is like just a, that's why that's going to happen when you don't have official oversight, but you have this, this, this kind yeah. of indirect or unofficial oversight, then it leaves <laughs> loopholes like that wide open. Exactly. And, and it's not just the Mexican government that has these concerns. The other day, I actually, I met the consul general of Guatemala and, and her role is actually fairly new in Vancouver that the, you know, the Guatemalan consulate has just set itself up here. One of the reasons it set itself up is because there are thousands of Guatemalan farm workers in BC. It's been a growing population and it's often, you know, and it's, it's a growing population of workers there and they realize they need more consular support for those workers. Um, you know, the, the, the Filipino consulate has some more concerns too. Like it, it's, uh, the, the Mexican government is not alone in its criticisms of this program and, and how it is overseen. So, but what's interesting to me and tell me if I've got this wrong, but it seems to me like this program that you just discussed and, and which, which is the reason why the Mexican consulate can get involved in some cases is, is a formal agreement between Mexico and Canada. I would think that therefore, you know, the, the consulate is part and parcel to the agreement in terms of it's an extension of the government of Mexico. And yet you interviewed the consul general at, from the, the Mexican consulate extensively who isn't buying the bad apples argument. Correct. Like really, yes. really believes this is a systemic problem. Yes. I think that's fair. Okay. So I guess, I guess then, I want to move into like potential solutions and and so maybe I'll just start with with a really broad question like what what is being proposed if if this is if we will at least for now imagine this is more of a, a bad apple problem or or I guess we can imagine it as a systemic problem what 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 are people proposing since no one wants the program to go away I don't think what are people proposing to 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 improve and and like fix these problems and maybe if it's all right, Jordan, I think that's actually a place to start is explaining why no one wants this program to end, Great. including its including its fiercest critics. Um, you know, I think that once you start off up a program like this, it is almost impossible to stop it. We talked earlier about the massive growth in this program, right, from a few dozen workers to well over 10,000. That is 10,000 people whose families are depending on income from this program, right? These are workers from Jamaica, Guatemala, Mexico, whose families back home are really, really desperate on the remittances that are being sent year over year. And some of them have been coming to Canada for years. And, and you know, in one case, I found I met a guy who had been coming back for 12 years. So those workers don't want the program to end. Neither do their respective governments, because if you're the government of Mexico, you're pretty happy about the fact that thousands of your nationals are no longer unemployed and are making income through a safe legal immigration pathway. Um, that is thereby, you know, reducing reliance on social services back home. That's a win for you too. 
On the Canadian side, you have farmers who, you know, as you've laid out, are desperate for workers, are very reliant in many subsectors on this program, and they are pressuring the government, which in turn does not want to annoy farmers, right? Does does not want to, you know, look to be going, it does not want to be seen to be going after the farm industry, right? Like I I think, you know, farmers have a certain cultural cachet, I hope you'll agree, Jordan. I do. <laughs> um, and even though, and even though, you know, it's, it's not a huge part of the British Columbian economy, you know, farmers are obviously an important part of so many communities in BC, right? And they are reliant on this program. So I, I, the governments know that they can't just pull the plug on this. When it comes to a conversation about solutions though, I, I found that like, they, there was a lot of resilience to change on the side of governments and um, and the industry more broadly. You know, when the industry talks about changes, they they they're in support of things like more oversight. They're support they're in support of pro, of you know different programs initiatives that maybe incentivize good behavior, but they bristle at the idea of more wholesale change. But there might be some more wholesale change coming. One thing that some of these farm worker advocates have called for is you know the idea that workers should have a little bit more freedom in this program as the program works right now this is also an important thing to cover i think as the program works right now workers are essentially bound to a single employer right it is a closed work permit and that leads to situations where if a worker is being abused or threatened by an employer or is unhappy with their work situation it can be very difficult for them to leave without jeopardizing their employment and their light and their right to legally work and stay in Canada, right? That's one of the sort of major, that is sort of the major power imbalance in this program. And what's been proposed by some farm worker advocates is there should be a more flexible form of work visa. Maybe a regional form of work visa, for example, that says a farm worker who comes in under this program can work at multiple farms in a given geographic area. So if they're not being treated well at farm A, they can go get a job at farm B. By the same token, that kind of program would also incentivize farms to potentially pay workers better, provide better working and living conditions, basically just improve the setup in some way. And you know, the free market in a way kind of you know solves some problems that way. That's something that like has also been mentioned now by federal immigration minister Mark Miller. He said in a committee meeting uh, a few months ago, that that is a type of change to the temporary foreign work for our program that the government is officially considering. So there, there's a real possibility this could happen. Farmers, though, are not necessarily fans of that kind of change, and, and for some fair reasons. Uh, one feature of the program is that farmers often pay the bill to fly workers from Guatemala, Mexico, or Jamaica to Canada. So they, they make a kind of a financial investment in these workers in getting them here, right? And so farmers kind of bristle at the idea that they could spend thousands of dollars to, you know, get a worker here to work for the season. And then after two months, that worker might go down the road because the, the person down the road is offering $2 more an hour. So it, it, it's not perfect. And there's definitely not alignment or agreement on some of these potential reforms. But there are people who are pretty serious about changing some of the rules. And, and it looks like there's a non-zero chance that governments might be on board, too. I also, so there's that potential reform. I also like, I just keep coming back myself to enforcement. I just like it, it's, it's such a, to me, I, I, I really have my a hard time wrapping my head around it. So like a bit about me, I, I've kind of straddled the non-farming and farming worlds. I came from a non-farming background. I have all kinds of people in my life who are wholesale against the concept of a temporary foreign worker program 
because they believe is inherent inherently exploitive. I've never believed that. I, I I know plenty of examples of farms that have great relationships and and are ethical users of the program and I see how vital it is for farmers. It does baffle me though. You mentioned the cachet that farmers have. Agreed. You know, you couldn't you couldn't get the government to give you the time of day. They kind of gave you the cold shoulder in your reporting. One yeah. thing I see, at least I'll speak for this current government. So the last however many years it's been under an NDP government, the Ministry of Agriculture is very responsive and sensitive to farmers. And it just like it is surprising to me that the the farmers who participate in this program just who who are good actors aren't aren't demanding a zero tolerance policy for for bad actors out of their own self-interest. It's really surprising to me. I'm I'm saying this to you, Zach. I'm also kind of saying this, imagining the farmers who are listening, because the ministry would mm -hmm. respond. If the farmers were demanding it, I think things would change quickly as far as oversight goes. It, and, and you know, it was interesting to me that I got that cold shoulder from every level of government, right? Like I, I had requested over weeks and months to talk to uh, Pam Alexis, who at the time was the the uh, the uh, Minister of Agriculture here in BC, I had asked to speak with federal officials on this. Sorry, I'm going to correct you. You mean Lana Popham oh, was because Pam, Pam Lana Alexis Popham, is. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Alexis is the current one. I'm so sorry I got them mixed up. But yeah, it was it, you know it's actually funny. We actually had to issue a correction to the story because we had been working on it for so long, and when I had reached out asking for comment over weeks and weeks and weeks, it was Popham who was the minister, and I think that there was a switch up. Like just before, like just after we sent in our final draft, that's just, and, and then we had to issue a correction after publication because we missed that. Just a little dumb aside. But um, yeah, like, you know, we, we, we asked over, over months and weeks to speak to any government official candidly about this program. We just wanted to present them with our findings and get their response and, and just talk about what they were doing about it, right? Because we also, you know, spoke with farmers on the record who expressed their own concerns. The farmers obviously defended the use of the program. They, they liked the program. They wanted to stick around, but they were concerned too. They were upset too when they heard about, you know, some of these horrifying cases. Um, and so I was mystified a little bit that governments didn't want to take a bit of a stronger hand. I think part of it comes down to that jurisdictional football that we talked about earlier, Jordan. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that half of this program lives in various parts of the provincial government and the other half of it lives in various parts of the federal government it kind of sets up a beautiful situation where if you don't want to take responsibility for it, you don't want to own the mess, you can just sort of step away and be like, oh, no, it's that guy. And, you know, there were multiple times in the emails where, you know, the federal government would be like, go talk to the province, the province would be like, go talk to the federal government. And at the end of the day, the problem is the problem and the problem is there. So it was it was dispiriting for sure to get that response from government in this reporting. Let me shift gears here a little bit. I, I want to talk about culture to some degree. I I'm I'm a little bit afraid I'm going to come off as like a bit Pollyanna-ish or naive, <laughs> but I. So I'm a resident of the Okanagan. We we have thousands of workers arrive every year. Is that it? Doesn't feel like more of a vibe of. I don't know, embracing, welcoming, celebrating. Like, I kind of want to talk about the social and cultural experience of these workers mm. a little bit. But first, these workers come here. They're, they're in our communities. We don't see them a lot. What is it like for them socially? I mean, maybe a good way of telling that story is to, be, is to imagine if your situation was reversed. Like, let's say, Jordan, that you and I 
hopped on a plane bound for uh, somewhere in rural Mexico. Let's say Jalisco. We, we arrived in Jalisco. As soon as we get to the airport, there's a van waiting to take us and a bunch of English-speaking Canadians out to a farm in the middle of the Mexican countryside. And we get there, we're aware, we're away from our partners, from our families, you know, for months at a time, we're working, you know, pretty long hours because it is the peak harvest season. And we're all in these remote farms. So there's not a whole lot of ways to get into town and to meet people. Because we're, we're living and spending all of our time with other English speakers, there's not a great way to learn Spanish. And the result is that we, we'd kind of be a, be a world probably of our own. And that's sort of the situation that migrant farm workers in the Okanagan are in. You know, I met workers who have been coming back to Canada for, like I said, 12, 10, 8 years, who spoke virtually no English because the only time they had to speak English was when they went to the supermarket once a week when their employer drove them into town to pick up groceries. That was it. They, they otherwise have very little connection to the outside world. Part of that is a language barrier. Part of that is the fact that, um, you know, is transportation. You know, a lot of the times these workers don't have an easy way of getting around. They often try to get a bike during the summer. That's like their main method of transportation. And you'll see like tons and piles of bikes in certain parts of the Okanagan and the Fraser Valley at the right time of year. But beyond, but you know, the other part of it is that they just don't really feel part of Canadian society while they're here. They don't really have an opportunity to engage in and, and, and be part of communities that they're, that they're next to. Um, and there's a real problem of loneliness. You know, one of the farm worker advocates I talked to, I'll never forget this, we were driving to a farm. And I said, you know, what do you find workers miss the most? And, and she said, you know, honestly, they just sometimes they just need people to talk to. There's a real enthusiasm, I think, for many workers who would really like to be more part of Canadian society while they're here, would like an opportunity to learn English. And I think, by the way, there's probably also an opportunity for farmers and employers to, to learn Spanish. I, I was kind of surprised that there weren't more programs focused on that, which would seem like such an obvious win-win. At one point during my reporting, I, I went to a Seventh-day Adventist church in Kelowna where they were doing English lessons for some of these farmers and their families. And, you know, while I was sitting there watching at one point, the person leading the lesson just turned to me and said, hey, Zach, wait, you're a native English speaker. Get up here. Like, I need your help. And had me explain, like, I think the difference between well and good. You know, there's a mm -hmm. distinction in English. And between that and my very poor Spanish, I got talking to some workers. And they, they honestly just seemed really elated and really happy that they you know, could kind of meet somebody and, 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 you know, participate in this. I do think that they're kind of a bit of a subculture. They're kind of their own world. And I do think there's probably a lost opportunity there that would be beneficial to everyone if there could be some more integration, some more sort of common ground there. I can, I can just almost like, in one way, it makes, it's like, I understand or it makes sense why there isn't more cultural exchange happening. In another way, though, I just like imagine mm -hmm. a, an alternate dimension where the Okanagan like celebrates these workers every year, if not all the time, just like with one big festival or something. Does that make sense? Does that, does that ring true to you at all? Like it's just, it's, no, just, I, it's I, yeah. funny to me. No, I'm picking up what you're putting down and, and like, listen, I, I, you know, I, one story I did hear from farmers is, and from the Mexican consul general, by the way, you know, she was clear that our good employers too. And she, when the specific example she gave is, you know, we have like farmers in, in Canada, in BC, who host parties on Mexican Independence Day, um, you know, and, and we'll like host a party for their workers on that day and get them a day off. And we, we think that's beyond kind. And that's awesome. I think there are some farmers who show their appreciation of workers in that way. But you're right on a more wholesale thing. I, I, I think part of it, Jordan, if this is sort of a major theme, I don't think governments and farmers are super keen to talk about this program or to highlight the extent 
to which they rely on temporary foreign workers. As you pointed out, some people politically are just against such a program. Some people have, you know, take great umbrage with the fact that this, that we've become so reliant on these workers, just, you know, think that's, you know, not a good thing inherently. And so maybe there's a little bit of shyness there or, or reticence to kind of acknowledge the importance of this. But I, I, I kind of agree. Like, I, I, I think that, you know, if anything, the, these communities and these farmers probably owe these workers a, a, you know, a great debt fundamentally. And it, it, it was kind of surprising there wasn't more of a, more of a crossroads, more of a, a place for exchange, I guess. You're right. We do owe them a debt, but we also, I just think, stand to gain from the cultural exchange. And it's, it's okay. Like it's not, we, it's not essential, but it just, to me, it's a missed opportunity. I like see groups of these workers and I just think like, ah, oh, I would, I would love to be able to, I would love a little interaction. I don't know. It yeah. just makes it, it's like a lost opportunity or something. No. And, and like, even from a very practical standpoint, like I'm, I'm harping a lot on the language, right. But from a very practical standpoint, you know, most of these workers don't speak English. There's usually one or two people on a given crew who has, has some ability in English, and that person is the interlocutor with the employer. That's typically how it is. They, they kind of translate for everybody. But like, think about how beneficial it would be for everybody if more farmers spoke Spanish and could mm -hmm. communicate directly with workers, or if workers had more of an opportunity to learn English and could communicate their concerns directly with farmers. You, you might actually be in a situation where workers are more empowered to stand up for themselves if something's going wrong, and where farmers and workers can actually work out misunderstandings before they become more serious issues, right? Like that's just an obvious win right there. Not to mention the fact that these workers would be able to, you know, you know, communicate with more people in the general community and, and you know, and, and, and just, you know, be in Canadian society a little bit more. I think it's totally fair to call this a missed opportunity, Jordan. I, I think if anything, that's one place where there's sort of an easy win there, and 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 it, the work has kind of fundamentally fallen to a few nonprofit agencies like churches, um, and some of the these advocacy groups. They're the ones who are kind of doing this work and trying to provide it. But um, as I pointed out earlier, they don't always have great relationships with these farmers. Um, there's there's kind of a divide there, and uh, I think that's unfortunate because I think it it means they miss out on stuff like this. Well, Zach, the, the reporting is really rich. There are multiple articles in the series by now, and I really encourage people to go and check it out because we've really only scratched the surface. And I, you know, earlier I focused a lot on housing. There are these other issues you highlighted in your summary that, that really deserve attention. And overall, I'm just uh, really appreciative that you took the time to, to tell us about, about this. Thank you so much, and thank you for your work. No worries. Thank you for having me on, Jordan. I really appreciate your questions. Hello again, everyone. That's it for this episode. I hope you go and check out Zach's journalism on this topic at the TAI. I've included a link in the notes for this show, but if you go to the TAI directly, type a case of bad apples into their search bar and you should turn up the first article in the series, which was published on August 31st of last year. Thanks for listening. Please check back here soon for more long form conversations with people from BC's agriculture sector. If you have suggestions for future guests of the show, I'm all ears podcast at farminginbc.ca. Finally, if you're a farmer in British Columbia, remember, we have a lot more in common than all our differences would suggest. Okay, talk to you next time.